Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today I'm going to take you through the October edition 2017 of the EMJ. And what we're looking at is the highlights of the issue as chosen by Rick Body, one of my colleagues here in Manchester and one of the other associate editors on the journal. So what's he picked up this month that we should be having a look at? Well, the first is around the use of pan scans in trauma, something which we've been doing for a long period of time now. But there is increasingly controversy about whether we should or we shouldn't be doing pan scans as frequently as we actually do in practice. So there's a paper this month which looks at the inconsistent practice and the finding of things like incidental omas. So finding things which are not really relevant to the patient that you're looking at, but might actually be important or not, as the case may be. And certainly in my practice, having seen quite a lot of elderly patients come through and get pan scanned, you see increasingly us diagnosing things like cancers in patients who are asymptomatic. But we also actually pick up quite a lot of stuff which isn't that important. So in this issue of the EMJ, there's two papers relating to the use of whole body CT in trauma. Firstly, Sami et al. report on the extent of variation in practice across the United Kingdom. And even amongst the MTCs, the major trauma centres, and even after adjustment for potential confounders, there's a 13-fold difference in the proportion of patients undergoing whole body CT, which is remarkable, really. And this important work should clearly do is to ask why there's such a variation and to determine which approach is optimal for patient outcomes. And one of the things I find is that people are sometimes keen to do whole body CT because it makes them feel good and they don't want to miss anything, but we don't really understand what the long-term consequences of that are. So on the same topic of whole body CT and trauma, Kurochek et al. look at the proportion of patients who have incidental findings. And all emergency physicians who care for patients with suspected major trauma must be familiar with this issue. The whole body CT is intended to detect serious injuries, but ultimately it can reveal an incidental finding that may require further investigation. Indeed, this work demonstrates that the phenomenon is actually very common. Three quarters of all patients undergoing whole body CT had at least one incidental finding. That's amazing. And while we consider that such findings are likely to have dubious clinical importance, this work also suggests that many of the incidental findings are highly clinical significant and might actually require urgent attention. Almost one-tenth of patients undergoing whole body CT that needed urgent attention. And again, that's really important. So there's some really fascinating data coming out of this. On the one hand, we're going to pick up stuff. On the other hand, is it important? On the other hand, yes, it is. On the other hand, well, actually, why is there such massive variation in whole body CT rates? So lots to think about there. Next, Rick picked up on the issues of extreme emergency medicine. So in this issue, we also take a detour from the routine of day-to-day practice within the confines of the ED and look at other things. So Lascosi Jones et al. provide a structured review of the considerations for providing healthcare at extreme events in remote settings. So things like things that are gaining popularity, like obstacle events, adventure, endurance competitions, with examples ranging from mountain biking to immersion in icy water and ultra-endurance foot races for up to 100 miles over seven days. Well, that's certainly going to have a few risks involved in that. And it's pretty clear that providing healthcare to such events does require really specific skills. And there's an excellent overview here produced by the authors that will help anybody who's thinking about doing this. And I think that's really important because I find a lot of junior doctors in particular invited to go along and provide support for this. And I'm not entirely sure that the juniors or the senior doctors are as well prepared as they might be. 
So in addition, we're very proud to publish the results of a fascinating RCT looking at the impact of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs on the incidence of acute kidney injury in ultra-endurance runners. And the findings, reported by Littman et al., are intriguing for several reasons. First, the overall incidence of AKI in ultra-endurance runners was found to be incredibly high, at 44%, which is incredible. And secondly, and importantly, the use of NSAIDs was found to significantly increase the incidence of AKI, with a number needed to harm of just 5.5. That's those big numbers. So this paper is clearly a must-read for anyone with an interest in this area and for anybody who's thinking about delivering healthcare to this group. Ricks also looked at a paper this month um, looking at sex, race and serious cardiopulmonary diagnoses. And this is an interest which we've had for a long period of time. And the fact that different races, different ethnicities, different genders have maybe different pathologies, but also a different experience of accessing healthcare with cardiopulmonary diagnoses. So maybe proving that it's never too late to publish good data, Pines et al. report a secondary analysis from a cohort of over 4,000 patients with chest pain recruited between 1999 and 2008. And they evaluated the differential value of individual symptoms for predicting serious cardiopulmonary diagnoses. And there were important differences. While in white men, the typical symptoms for an acute coronary syndrome were predictive, so things like pressure, tightness, substernal location, and paid radiation to the left arm, but there were no predictive symptoms in white women, and only diaphoresis, or sweating as we call it, predicted serious cardiopulmonary diagnosis in black men. These findings suggest that sex and race really do have an impact on a patient's symptoms in this context, and that supports the notion that women and black patients are more likely to present with atypical symptoms, and by extrapolation, perhaps be less likely to be picked up in the ED. So things to think about there, particularly if you've got a a very diverse population coming to your ED, like we do in Manchester. And then finally, Rick's picked up a paper on looking at the co-location of primary care in ED. And this is something that our Royal College of Emergency Medicine and the Patients Association both support, the co-location of primary care services with the ED. And this is something we've done in Manchester for a long time. In doing so, those patients who present to the ED with a complaint that could be treated in primary care, they can be immediately redirected to the co-located service rather than adding to the burden on ED overcrowding. So in this issue, Ablard et al. used qualitative methodology to explore the factors that may help to make such initiatives a success, because they're not always, based on the experience in Yorkshire and Humber in the UK. And I think if you are thinking about service reconfiguration, or if you've already reconfigured and you want to optimise your service, this is a really interesting paper to look at. So that brings us to the end. Now, there's a couple of other things going on this month. We have the Archem conference in Liverpool, which will be fascinating. And most importantly, of course, it's the 50th anniversary of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. So we're just 50 years old, which is not a lot, but is also a great deal of time. It's a paradox there. And I, for one, am looking forward to another fantastic 50 years of emergency medicine here in the UK and with the EMJ. Have a great October. Enjoy your emergency medicine. Have fun. <laughs>